Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 66, An Unnatural Intimacy, part 4. Last week we left off with the return of Konoe Fumimaro to the position of Prime Minister in July 1940. This week we'll cover the next steps to Pearl Harbor, but first we're going to have to take a few steps backwards to get an idea of the situation facing Japan at this critical juncture. Specifically, we're going back to Europe on September 1st, 1939. On that day, Adolf Hitler struck Poland, seemingly out of the belief that Britain and France, which had promised to defend Poland, were not truly willing to go to war for the sake of Eastern Europe. If that was his thinking, he was wrong. Two days later, France and the United Kingdom declared war on Germany. Despite Hitler's miscalculation, things still turned out well at the beginning. Poland collapsed in the face of a German assault, particularly once the Soviet Union attacked it in the rear. The Soviets, you see, had made a deal with the devil. Though they had originally discussed plans to work with the Polish, the French, and the British to stop the Germans, since they, being communists, were ideologically opposed to the Nazis, Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union, felt that these overtures were either not serious or unlikely to succeed. Still, he would have to do something to adjust to the change in the strategic situation in Eastern Europe, and signing a deal with Hitler would give him a chance to use the chaos to gobble up more territory, while drawing a minimal amount of heat onto himself. The deal was for the two sides to split Poland, and for Germany to acknowledge Soviet influence in Eastern Europe. Stalin could be assured that, at least for now, he would not have to deal with the Germans, and Hitler would have his eastern flank secure while he turned west. In Japan, the treaty between the two powers, the Soviets and the Germans, referred to as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, after the foreign ministers of each country, was viewed as a disaster. Japan's entire policy towards the Soviet Union had been premised on an anti-Soviet alliance of itself, Germany, and Italy, designed to keep the Soviets under control. After all, the Soviets were the major great power rival of Japan, a position they had inherited from the old government of Tsarist Russia. This is true by virtue of both geographic proximity, as well as the on-again-off-again Soviet influence in China, which was seen by many leaders in Japan as a threat to their position on the continent. We'll cover this more in depth on the episodes on China and Japan's relationship, but suffice it to say for now that the Soviets were one of many nations trying to extend their influence over Chiang Kai-shek and the ruling Guomindang Party, and they were the players that Japan was most worried about. Now, Germany had gone and broken free of the old anti-Soviet alliance and had signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. The Japanese were left twisting in the wind, having gotten absolutely zero warning that this was going to happen. In fact, the news was such a scandal that the acting prime minister resigned. His name, if you're curious, was Hiranuma Kiichiro. He's a fairly minor player who will come up exactly once more in a future episode on the atomic bombs and then never be mentioned again. The Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact essentially split the Japanese leadership into two camps. On the one hand were civilians and most of the naval leaders, who believed that the smart game was to take this reversal and turn it into an opportunity. They could repudiate Germany on the world stage, join them with the majority of Western powers in condemning German behavior, and use that to begin mending the rift with the West caused by the China War. 
Yonai Mitsumasa, the man we discussed last time who would be prime minister in 1940 and attempt to steer the country away from war, was one of these people. The other group was led by the vigorous young diplomat who had led the walkout from the League of Nations, Matsuoka Yosuke. Yosuke wanted to maintain Japan's relationship with Germany, and even enhance it. He believed that two steps were necessary. Germany and Japan would have to sign a full alliance, which the Germans were already very keen on as a means to keep the British distracted in Asia, and Japan would have to follow Germany's lead and sign a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. Eventually, Matsuoka's long-term goal was to unite Germany, Italy, Japan, and the Soviet Union in a single alliance. Though communism and fascism were hardly ideologies which gelled well together, each state in that group shared an interest in seeing the world system as it currently stood overturned, and thus Matsuoka figured he could form a unified bloc of nations to put pressure on the West, nations brought together not by what they liked, but what they didn't. The considerable pool of resources and manpower that such an alliance would contain would be enough to force the West to back off Japan and let Japan have a free reign in China. Matsuoka decided, correctly, that the United States would be the nation he most had to scare. Britain already had its hands full with Germany, so if the US could be convinced to back down by this new alliance, the British would follow suit. In this thinking, Matsuoka relied on his background, remember he had lived in the United States, to provide an assessment of American character. It's best summed up by a famous anecdote from his early life. When Matsuoka Yosuke returned home to Japan after living in the United States during his teenage years, he was asked by a teacher to describe the differences between Japanese and American society. Matsuoka responded that, quote, the most important thing to remember is never to be underestimated by the Americans. He, Matsuoka, then went on to describe a hypothetical scenario in which an American man and a Japanese man ran into each other on a narrow path. He continued, quote, The American would not thank you if you bowed to him and politely gave way. He would actually look down on you, thinking that you were a total pushover. If you give him a punch in the face, that's when he will start respecting you, seeing you as his equal. Japanese diplomats should take note of this from now on. Matsuoka's idea was for an alliance with Germany and a non-aggression pact with the Soviets to be a diplomatic punch in the face for the West, especially the United States. His plan was backed by more aggressively-minded civilians as well as the majority of leaders in the army, who were desperate to seize on anything they thought might give them a chance to wrap things up in China to their satisfaction. Until the summer of 1940, Japan's leadership was paralyzed between these two plans. From January of that year, Prime Minister Yonai actively fought against Matsuoka's plans, but his own ideas about reconciliation with the West were very unpopular. So, what turned the tables? Well, events in France. If you're familiar with European history, you probably know that in May 1940, the Germans crushed the French army. The short version of how this happened is as follows. The French had originally planned to get Belgium to let them into their territory and fight the Germans there. In theory, because this would present a shorter front to cover, but also because, in this case, the majority of war damage would occur in Belgian territory and not in France. The Belgians, sensing that this plan perhaps did not entirely have their best interests at heart, gambled against it and refused to let the French in, banking on Hitler respecting their neutrality. 
Hitler made a show of it, but as his armies moved toward France, he declared war on Belgium. Just as in World War I, the small nation would be the highway for an invasion of France. French troops were eventually let in to defend the Belgians, but the Germans were faster and managed to catch the French as they were moving towards the line in Belgium they had planned to defend. The French, unprepared for an ambush and away from their defenses, were crushed, and the Germans exploited the gap to invade France. The Third French Republic, which had held out in World War I for four years and after two million casualties, more than the United States has lost in every war we've ever fought combined, surrendered one month and twelve days after the invasion of Belgium began. The collapse of France was greeted with ecstatic behavior in Tokyo. The hardliners believed Britain could not be far behind, and now without their metropole to protect them, France's colonies in Indochina, today's Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, were vulnerable to Japanese influence. Eight days after the fall of France, on June 22, 1940, Yonai Mitsumasa was forced out of the prime ministership by the army, who clamored for the return of Konoe Fumimaro. Konoe, it was thought, would be more pliant to the army's point of view, particularly in relation to Indochina. In addition, the army pressed for, and got, the installation of Matsuoka Yosuke as foreign minister. Matsuoka was given a free hand to pursue his plan for a German-Japanese-Italian-Soviet alliance to resist the West. Konoe, for his part, returned to his non-leading leadership style. He himself was actually not in favor of pressing the West any harder, he didn't think they would back down, but he was unwilling to restrain the army or Matsuoka himself. Rather than ordering them to back down, he simply tried to get them to agree to do so. As a result, Konoe was unable to get anything done, and in late September, things came to a head. First, on September 23rd, Japanese troops began moving into northern Indochina. The logic behind this was threefold. First, Japan could use the resources, especially rubber, available in Indochina to become more self-sufficient and rely less on Western trade. Second, by taking control of this area, Japan could block off an avenue for supplies being sent to Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese. Third, the weakened French government, called Vichy France after its new capital, put into place by the Nazis, was in no position to resist Japan. For now, the Japanese only sent troops into northern Indochina to help the French keep order, but that flimsy cover story did not fool anybody. Second, on September 27th, Japan signed the Tripartite Pact in Berlin. Japan, Germany, and Italy were now formal allies. Matsuoka and the other hardliners banked on these maneuvers, convincing the United States to back down. But they had the exact opposite effect. Instead, the American leadership under Franklin Roosevelt became even more convinced of the necessity of standing up to Japan. Before, the problems in Asia seemed to be separate from the ones in Europe. While many in America, particularly President Roosevelt, were becoming convinced of the necessity of resisting the Nazis, no such consensus existed in East Asia. Support for China was popular, to be sure, but anything beyond purely economic support was still controversial. The Tripartite Pact, however, tied things together. Japan was now a partner of Germany, and rather than being an isolated and separate case, it appeared to be part of a wider fascist alliance, hell-bent on overturning the stability of the world. On September 26, the day before the Tripartite Pact was signed, not that it would have had any effect, the United States signaled its resolve to China 
by placing an embargo on scrap iron and steel being sent to Japan. The day before, the American Senate voted to expand funding for Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese. Japan was, and is, far from self-sufficient in terms of iron and steel, and these metals are essential for any industrialized military. The American embargo, as a result, was a threat to Japan's continued ability to sustain its war in China long-term. Still, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. I mean, it's not like they put an oil embargo in place or anything. At least, not yet. Leading the charge for the embargo was a man who we'll be seeing a lot of in this episode and the next, Cordell Hull. Hull was a Tennessee-born Democrat and a committed New Dealer. He'd hitched himself early to the rising star of Franklin Roosevelt as one of the last generation of Southern Democrats in American history before a series of events would see the Democrats flip to become the party of the North rather than the party of the South. As a result, he had been FDR's Secretary of State for the entirety of the Roosevelt presidency and would keep the position until November 1944. Hull was incensed by Japanese behavior in 1940 and utterly despised Matsuoka Yosuke, who he saw, not incorrectly, as a self-important bully. The American reaction, however, did not convince Matsuoka that he had misread the situation, even though at this point he pretty obviously had. He remained convinced that the Americans would cave in under enough pressure. Indeed, at this point, Matsuoka's behavior started to get a bit manic. He was known for expounding for hours on end about his foreign policy philosophy and why it was the only way to save Japan, and was so energetic about this that a rumor began to circulate that he was addicted to cocaine. Matsuoka insisted that the Americans were bluffing and would back down, and as a result there was no particular desire among the leadership to reconsider its decisions. Instead, the Japanese leadership was fixated on another important date. November 1940 was, according to the traditional reckoning, the 2600-year anniversary of the founding of Japan, if one reckons off the mythology we discussed all the way back in episode 2. The anniversary saw observations all over Japan, with the leadership, including Konoe, awash in self-congratulations about the grand empire that Japan had built for itself. In concert with the anniversary, the government began stepping up its pro-war propaganda in an attempt to rally the populace to finish the fight in China and to convince foreign observers that Japan was not about to back down. Part of this drive included the suppression of foreign influences, For example, on October 31st, 1940, jazz and dance clubs were legally banned in Japan as being too westernized and decadent. Part of it also included rationing. From this point forward, and getting increasingly more severe the longer the war went on, the Japanese government, for example, instituted the two most horrible words I can think of, beer rationing. By the end of 1941, however, it was becoming increasingly clear that the West was not going to back down. And with increased support from the United States, Chiang Kai-shek's regime was more stable than it had ever been. The war in China still had no end in sight. An effort would have to be made to patch things up with the U.S., but again the leadership was divided on what to do. Konoe and the other moderate leaders wanted to dispatch a new ambassador from Japan to the U.S., They were eyeing Nomura Kichisaburo, a retired admiral who had worked with Roosevelt back when Roosevelt was assistant secretary for the U.S. Navy. Thus, Nomura could be counted on to have a good relationship with the American leader. 
Matsuoka, meanwhile, wanted to double down on his previous strategies and strengthen ties with the Soviets, Germans, and Italians. In the end, the Japanese leadership was paralyzed, and Konoe took the only way out that would avoid him having to decisively confront anybody. He took both options. Nomura was dispatched to Washington on February 11, 1941. One month later, Matsuoka left for a grand tour of Berlin and Moscow. Matsuoka, it seems, was getting harder and harder to control. Konoe was beginning to have his doubts about the utility of the tripartite pact, since, after all, it hardly seemed to be convincing the Americans to back down, which was supposed to be its primary purpose. But when he went through an intermediary to express his displeasure to Matsuoka, Matsuoka brushed him off by insisting that he was being very supportive of the Prime Minister's initiatives, but that, quote, "...diplomacy requires expertise, and I, meaning Matsuoka, know better what to do next." Nomura's arrival in Washington was greeted, at first, with enthusiasm. Nomura was known as a sympathizer with the American position, and was also apparently personally quite friendly and likable. However, he had three major things going against him. First, Nomura was at heart a trained military man, not a diplomat. At first, he did not really understand what his job was. He was under the impression that his best method for success was to flatter the Americans and stretch the truth in order to tell them what he thought they wanted to hear. This is, in fact, a terrible idea, for two reasons. First, when inevitably such overstatements catch up to a diplomat, it tends to ruin their credibility. Second, if both sides are not clear about what they want, it makes coming to an actual agreement impossible. Since neither side is aware of the other's negotiating position, and thus can't make realistic offers. Second, Nomura was very proud of his English, but it was apparently not very good. His accent was very thick, and when he spoke with American diplomats, he was often forced to repeat himself. However, he was unwilling to rely on interpreters, being very proud of the English he had acquired. Third, and strangest of all, Nomura was not actually clear on who he was negotiating with. You see, early on in the process, a group of civilian Americans and Japanese inserted themselves into the peacemaking process, and while their intentions were good, the results were terrible. On the American side, the ringleaders were a pair of Roman Catholic priests, Bishop James Edward Walsh and Father James M. Drought, members of a missionary society called Mary Knoll, based in upstate New York. The men were extremely worried about the prospect of war in East Asia, both for humanitarian reasons and because Mary Knoll had a large and very active missionary system in China, which, if war broke out, would undoubtedly be suppressed by the Japanese. The two priests began their peacemaking initiative back in November 1940, when they visited Japan and met with many key Japanese business leaders, all being opposed to war as being bad for business, as well as with Matsuoka Yosuke who did his usual thing and spent hours pontificating at them about his desire for peace, if only the Americans would be reasonable about Japan's interests in Asia. For their part, the priests were less than honest. They both had connections to Frank Walker, a member of the Roosevelt cabinet, though not with the most influential of positions in terms of foreign policy, he was postmaster general. Matsuoka knew this, and when he asked about what connections, if any, the two men had to the federal government, they refused to answer directly thus implying that such connections could have existed when they in no way did. Roosevelt, for his part, did meet with the priests upon their return in January 1941, 
and showed a willingness to use them to talk to pro-peace elements in the Japanese government. The two priests, however, took it upon themselves to go much farther. Instead, they spent two months drafting up an understanding, which they referred to, very uninventively, as the draft understanding, that they could present to the Japanese as a statement of the American position. They were helped in this drafting by two Japanese, Ikawa Tadao, a banker with substantial American connections, who had also been a classmate in school of Prime Minister Konoe Funimaro, as well as a colonel and member of the Army General Staff, which was opposed to war with the U.S. as a distraction from war in China, named Iwakuro Hideo. The two Japanese members of this cabal were also trusted confidants of Nomura, since they had helped Nomura arrange some private meetings with Secretary of State Hull as proof of their influence and goodwill. The plan was to convince the Japanese government of the willingness of the Americans to negotiate and keep the hope for peace alive. Unfortunately, there was one big problem in the way. The draft understanding sent to the Japanese government by these men in no way represented the position of the American government. You see, these four men, like Nomura, were not clear on what the job of a diplomat actually was. They thought that if they told the Japanese what the Japanese wanted to hear, that would be good. It would keep everyone at the negotiating table. Unfortunately, they did not think two steps ahead to when the Japanese finally got back to the Americans, talked to them directly, and realized that the actual American position had nothing in common with what they'd been sent. As a result, when the Japanese got the draft understanding, they were ecstatic, and immediately began drafting their own proposals using what they had received as a baseline. When the actual American government got these drafts, they rejected them as unrealistic and the Japanese negotiating position as ridiculous, since it in no way resembled the positions being laid out by the federal government in its negotiations with Japan. As a result, the Japanese were now convinced that the Americans were backpedaling from previous offers, and the Americans were convinced that the Japanese negotiating position was fundamentally ridiculous and nothing they could agree to. That's the short version, at least. There's actually an entire book about the misadventures of this little group, called the John Doe Associates, which was their nickname at the State Department, written by a historian named Robert Buto. He's one of the great American historians of Japan. It's worth a read, and I might do a larger episode on these men down the line, but for now, it's just important to get the short version in there. By inserting themselves into the peacemaking process, the John Doe Associates made the process more complicated and made it harder for each side to be clearer about what they wanted. There's no guarantee that peace would have happened without them, since it's not like there was much in common between the American and Japanese positions, but they definitely did not help. Matsuoka, meanwhile, was meeting with success in at least the first part of his plan. Hitler received him well and assured him of the friendship between their peoples. The two were greeted in the Berlin train station with cries of, Hail Hitler! Hail Matsuoka! During his return trip to the Soviet Union in April 1941, he got the non-aggression pact he had been pressing for, and an unusually friendly reception from Joseph Stalin. Stalin even came to the train station to see Matsuoka off personally, a friendly and unusual gesture for the normally reclusive dictator, who went so far as to say, quote, You see, I am Asian, I am from Georgia, we are brothers, so we must work together. Stalin, for his part, was moved less by feelings of brotherhood than by the feeling of being pressed by the Germans. In April, they had rolled into Yugoslavia, and already his spies were whispering rumors of a German attack on the Soviet Union. 
Rumors Stalin, by the way, did not want to hear, as he felt he needed several more years to prepare his country for an inevitable war with the Germans. He betrayed his nerves brought on by the situation in Europe in a variety of ways. For example, when his foreign minister, Vyacheslav Molotov, and Matsuoka were signing the text of the agreement, he was pacing back and forth, rearranging the table for the reception after the signing. He also dealt with his nerves by getting uproariously drunk with Matsuoka. So Matsuoka, it seemed, was getting what he wanted, and thanks to the confusion caused by the John Doe associates, it seemed, for now, that the negotiations with the U.S. were going to succeed. Somehow, Konoe had managed to pull Japan's collective head off the chopping block. The future of the empire might well be secured. However, two acts of fate intervened to throw this plan into disarray. The first was the American response to the proposals Japan had drafted using the draft understanding. The Americans, unsurprisingly, rejected them completely. This actually suited Matsuoka just fine. He was furious that diplomacy had been going on behind his back with the Americans, and felt that the draft understanding would scuttle all his carefully planned attempts to scare the Americans into backing down. The second act happened on June 22, 1941. The armies of Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, blasting through the Soviet defenses and the German-Soviet non-aggression pact. These two developments would drastically alter Japanese planning and diplomacy, and next week we'll discuss how they began to push Japan closer and closer to the fateful attack on Pearl Harbor. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week for an Unnatural Intimacy Part 5.